But all good things come to an end, and so does the harvest season. It doesn't last forever. And with the end of harvest comes the fear again of loss and starvation. And Ruth and Naomi need a more permanent solution to their problem. And Naomi, knowing the critical role that extended family plays in a crisis like this, urges Ruth to seek a permanent relationship with Boaz that goes far beyond their daily bread. And this is what we've just read uh, in the scriptures, Ruth chapter one, uh, 3, verses 1 to 13. And I, I believe that this speech of Naomi, it's interesting that it's so detailed what she tells Ruth to do, but this interaction here and her instruction to Ruth and what she must do, it serves for us today as a clear example for obeying Christ as his ambassadors. For we are ambassadors of Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, ambassadors for Christ to this present age. So what does it mean to be an ambassador to this present age that we're living in? My goal today is to link two passages of Scripture together, where the first, Ruth chapter 3, will serve as an illustration and an application of the second 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 to 20. So you can look up 2 Corinthians 5 and Ruth chapter 3 and keep a finger in each place. We're kind of going to go back and forth a little bit. These two passages are not commonly linked together. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever seen them linked this way before. However, in the course of teaching a course on evangelism, how to share our faith with friends, neighbors, and colleagues at work, I discovered that they pair very well together. And there are many times when applying the scriptures in our modern context seems difficult, and an illustration can help bolster and strengthen our resolve to do just what God's word is instructing us to do. And I found that Ruth 3 helps me understand what it means to apply 2 Corinthians 5 in my life. So let's begin there. Let's begin by looking at 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll be starting in verses 18 to 20. And I'll read that. This is from the, the English Standard Version. Paul writes, Through Christ, God reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, what are the principal elements of this passage? Just kind of walk through and just kind of hit the, uh, the skeletal structure here, you know, what the principal elements are. The first is reconciliation. This is a message about our reconciling to God, and that implies a division that exists between mankind and the Creator that is being healed. You know, people need to know that that exists. And increasingly, I find that my neighbors and friends and colleagues are unaware of that. They might even assume that there is no need for reconciliation with the Creator. But we see God's Word revealing to us, no, in fact, we are cut off from God in our natural state. And we can't begin to seek an appropriate cure, thinking of it in a medical way, without an accurate diagnosis. Our greatest problem is our sin that separates us from a holy God. 
That's what reconciliation is about, God healing that division, reconciling us to himself. A second principal element is this idea of delegation, that God has given this ministry of reconciliation to us. There are many things in the scriptures that will blow your mind. That one is right up there towards the top. I mean, resurrection is probably above that somewhere. But that God would give to us, to you and to me, the ministry of reconciliation, I cannot quite figure out, understand, but he has done so. This implies a responsibility. It might raise the question, how are we doing as ministers of reconciliation? Another principal element is that as ministers of reconciliation, God has created a new role for us, that we are now ambassadors for Christ. We are to represent him and to represent his interests in the world, in every sphere of influence that we have. Another principal element is that there is a spiritual reality that in our ambassadorial role, God is making his appeal through us. He chose to do it that way. It's through you. It's through me. God is making an appeal through us. And the climax of this passage is a curious command. Paul is ramping up the volume, and it gets the loudest, at we implore you, be reconciled to God. Now, implore is a word that we don't use much in our modern speech, so it bears a little explanation. To implore someone means to beg someone earnestly to do something. Synonyms that we might use for implore would be exhort, strongly encourage, urge someone. These are all forms of compelling speech. We appeal to others that they would be compelled by Christ to respond to the gospel. If if God is imploring us in the gospel, then we can say that proclaiming the gospel is a form of compelling speech. We're actually compelling people to respond to what God has done for them. And there's two really good examples that I could think of from the New Testament that show that on display for us. One is Acts 2. Peter preaches the gospel at Pentecost. The people come under great conviction by the Holy Spirit and ask, what must we do? How should we respond to this message? And Paul does not, I mean, Peter does not stop there and say, well, you know, think about it. Consider what Jesus has done for you and just, you know, here, I'm just going to give it to you. He doesn't do that. He commands them, repent and be baptized. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. It's a form of compelling speech. He commands them to do something. Does that seem foreign and weird to you? It does to me sometimes. Acts 17, Paul, speaking to the wisest and brightest of the Greek philosophers in Athens, at the Areopagus. He ends his gospel proclamation to them this way, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God commands all men everywhere to repent. It's a form of compelling speech. He's compelling them to respond to what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And it raises the question for me, can we do this as ambassadors of Christ? Can we compel people to respond to the gospel? 
And I would say we must do this. But this is what gospel proclamation is. We have to regain the practice of exhortation. We must restore an attitude of urgency that is part of the gospel. This is the ministry of reconciliation that God has entrusted to you and to me. Simply put, we are not proclaiming the gospel as God intends if we're not doing it in a compelling way, if we're not using exhortation in our gospel proclamation. But you know, this is very difficult to do. If you're feeling a little uncomfortable, I'm right there with you. It's not easy to do this. What makes this so difficult? I've thought a lot about this, and I would answer it probably the most succinct way by saying that we live in an age of individual autonomy. It's considered rude, if not wrong, to compel someone to do anything that they don't already want to do themselves. I want you to consider a few quotes that illustrate this. This is Ralph Waldo Emerson, 19th century poet, philosopher. He says, the only person you are designed to become is the person you decided to be. If you think that way, then it seemed rude and off-putting that other people have decided already for you that you should be something different than you are. Uh, Robert Frost, 20th century, century poet, poet, accept no one's definition for your life. Define yourself. Uh, David Reisman, 20th century sociologist, he says, men are created different. They lose their social freedom and their individual autonomy in seeking to become like each other. Don't lose your freedom by being compelled by Christians to come to faith in Jesus Christ, he would say. Another, Richard Dawkins, who may be more familiar to you, uh, he's an atheist, uh, debater, has many books refuting Christianity from his perspective, a scientism author. He says this, "There's there's something infantile. There is something infantile in the presumption that somebody else has a responsibility to give your life meaning and point. Right? That's infantile, that other people would tell you what your life means. The truly adult view, by contrast, is that our life is as meaningful, as full, and as wonderful as we choose to make it. Right? And this is the water that people swim in, in your neighborhood, where you work. This is the air that they breathe. This is the reality for them, that they live an autonomous life and they will decide the outcomes and how they will live. So it's very difficult to come to them and use exhortation to implore them, to compel them to respond to the gospel. And we stand at this crossroads between Bible truth and the culture that we live in. And we are curious, confused at times to understand how do we respond to both? How do we live in the bridge between those two realities? I said this is, this is the gospel of this age, that, that you rule yourself. That's what autonomy means. And no one can or should compel you to do anything that you have not chosen for yourself. And how should we respond between the tension between those two? I would just say that we cannot acquiesce. That means surrender to the spirit of this age. We are ambassadors of an age that is coming. And to represent 
him and the age that is coming well, we have to use the language that he uses. For it is the spirit that revealed to Peter and Paul to compel the audience of their day, which was just as interested in living an autonomous life as our neighbors and friends and colleagues. He moved them along to use exhortation to proclaim the gospel. So we must become exhorters and implorers of God again. God is making his appeal through us if we are, in fact, making an appeal, using compelling speech that others would be reconciled to God. And here is where Ruth 3 serves for me, and hopefully for you, as an instructive example of how. How do we do that? How can we exhort others to be reconciled to God? So let's turn to Ruth 3. Uh, I'm going to summarize a lot of the book. You can spend this afternoon reading the book of Ruth. It takes about 15 minutes to read through it, and I encourage you to do so because it's a wonderful, wonderful book of the Bible. So as I said earlier, Naomi and Ruth are down to their last resources in this illustration. The harvest is over. The gleaning is done. They're running out of food, but they have a plan. Their plan is to sell their family property so that they will have resources to live off of. But there's another solution that Naomi is thinking about. It's the Old Testament law that allows them to, in some ways, have a transaction, a sale, uh, to the kinsman redeemer. It's a little different from a sale because there's not a permanent transaction. Uh, If you go back to Leviticus chapter 25, what you'll find there is a system that God set up where a family member, a close relative, has the obligation to care for those who have suffered loss in their family. So if you were doing well and you noticed your cousin was having a problem, you were obligated to help them. These are the kind of things that a, a kinsman redeemer was obligated to do. He would buy back land that you had already sold and mortgaged so that it would be kept in the, in the family name. A kinsman redeemer would buy back a family home that you had sold in a time of need. He would also buy back relatives who had sold themselves. I mean, you've got to be really down on your luck to sell yourself into slavery as a solution. But if that happened, your kinsman redeemer was obligated to come and buy you back. That's what redemption means. They would redeem you from slavery or indentured servitude. He was also the avenger for anyone who had been killed in his clan. He was obligated to find the, the killer and execute capital punishment. And then he could also buy family property and use it for a short period of time until the Sabbath year when it revert back to the ancestral owner if and only if there was an heir that remained. Okay? There's one other idea going on in Ruth. It's the idea of leveret marriage. It's not the same as being a kinsman redeemer. Levere means brother-in-law. And so leveret marriage means that your brother-in-law takes you on as a, as, a, as a wife and provides an heir for you to carry on the family name. And the kinsman redeemer could also perform that role if there wasn't a literal brother-in-law in place to fulfill the function, and he could do that too. And so all of the work of the kinsman redeemer was to save a family from destruction. For if you had no land, you had no future. If you had no children, no future No home, no future. If you're in bondage, certainly no future. And if there's no protections, 
and no consequences for violence against your family, you have no future. And the question is raised, who could provide Ruth and Naomi with a future? Their daily needs were met for now, but they still had the same problem. They had no future, no provider. They needed a kinsman redeemer to provide a future for them. And Boaz, in this moment where Ruth comes to him, he recognizes their need and is willing to marry Ruth to meet their need. This is an incredible act of kindness and mercy to them. And as we carefully observe this act of kindness, it starts to take on the contour of the gospel as we know it more fully in the New Testament, especially when we look back at Ruth with New Testament lenses. And now I'd like to kind of frame Ruth this way, the story, as the gospel according to Ruth. In the gospel according to Ruth, we find the problem. Listen to the similarities of the gospel, the New Testament. Naomi and her family leave the Lord and his provision to find fulfillment in the world. We don't need God's promised land and his provision. We'll go to the world to find that. The world that they go to is Moab. And while they're there, they experience the brokenness of living an autonomous life, which is oftentimes the outcome of living apart from Christ. For there, their father and the sons die. They also marry Moabite women, uniting themselves to those who have no knowledge of God or desire to live for him. And the reason why God forbade that in the Old Testament is because this usually leads to abandoning Yahweh and worshiping other gods. It was about worship that God forbade that. It had nothing to do with culture or race or any of that. It had to do with the worship of Yahweh. Keep in mind, historically, the Moabites were enemies of God. They were prevented in the Old Testament from coming into the temple or receiving God's grace because they had opposed Israel and fought against them during the conquest. Okay, So that's the problem. They've rejected God. They've gone to some other place, and that place has not been a future and a provider for them. They come back empty and broken, like so many of us when we come back to Christ. And that is the solution in the gospel, that we must return to the Lord and return to his grace and mercy. The Bible calls that repentance, turning away from sin to God. Think about the similarity to the prodigal son parable, okay? Very similar. And they come back to take refuge, not just in their village, that their neighbors and friends would take pity on them, but they come to take refuge in the God of Israel. We know that from Ruth chapter 2. This is verse 11 and 12. This is Boaz speaking to Ruth while she's working in his fields. He says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Isn't that an incredible picture? You've come back to take refuge under the wings of God. Now, in the Old Testament times, they would observe that in this dry, arid land, that birds during the midday heat would kind of tent their wings over the nest to protect the chicks from exposure. 
And this is the first time in the Bible that that metaphor is used for God's protection. But it's all over the place in the Psalms written by David, who's a descendant of Boaz. And I just wonder if this idea of God protecting you with his wings was not something that he routinely heard around his house growing up, and it finds its way into the Davidic Psalms. It's an incredible picture. And in the story, Ruth will use that image again. You'll see it in a minute. This idea of God's protective covering. And it turns out that Boaz will become the answer to his own prayer for her. So we have the problem, we have the solution. Now we have the response. This brings us to chapter 3. It's not enough to know that Boaz is the kinsman redeemer and that this could happen for you. We actually need it to happen for us. And so Naomi exhorts Ruth. She uses this compelling speech. She implores her, urges her to go. She says, I must seek a rest, a security. Your translation said a home for you. It's broader than just a house or a home. It's God's provision. It's a rest. You must present yourself to the kinsman redeemer, and you must ask him to extend his covering over you. That's the same word that she uses in chapter 3. Your translation said, will you extend the edge of your garment? That's another way of translating that same word. But we could say in English, would you spread your wings over me, Boaz? She's referring right back to what he had said to her before. You're praying that God would protect me. Why don't you be a part of that solution, Boaz? Why don't you be the wings that God uses to protect me? In our case, we go to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and ask that he would extend his covering, which is his grace and mercy and forgiveness to us, that we would receive the benefit of his work on the cross, forgiveness of sins and a reconciled relationship. And it's not just enough to know the gospel. We must respond to the gospel by trusting the Lord, our kinsman redeemer, to extend the blessing of forgiveness to each one of us personally. This is sometimes called the personal appropriation of the gospel, that each person must respond to what Jesus has done. And this is why exhortation is so important Proclaiming the good news is not simply conveying information. It's not a spiritual FYI. You know, just for your information, you might want to know someday what Jesus did for you on the cross, but you do with that information what you will. That's not what we're doing. It's compelling speech that intends to move the hearer to respond to the gospel. Remember Paul in Acts 17. God is commanding all men, that includes everyone in my audience at the Areopagus, to repent today, okay? Now, what does that trust look like? What does responding look like? It means that we have to trust the promise of the Redeemer. When Boaz says to Ruth, I will do this for you. I will do it tomorrow. There's another kinsman who's nearer than me, but if he doesn't want to redeem you, I certainly will do it. Trust my words in doing so. This is what we must do. We must trust the promise of Christ and believe the word of God, that he will do what he promises for those who turn to him. I think there are many passages of Scripture that would fulfill this, but I would just say 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive 
us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the sin problem being cleansed and taken care of, now we can understand how reconciliation occurs for us in Christ. And then beyond responding, we experience a new life. Our lives change from a dead end with no hope and no future to a life filled with joy and promise. You think about Obed, the child of promise that's born to Ruth and Boaz. He is the future that is restored by the kinsman redeemer. And then we receive our redemption with joy. Naomi's bitterness is transformed. And an empty woman is made into a grandmother who has delight in her grandson. Compare these two passages. This is, the first will be Ruth chapter 1, the beginning of the story. The end will be Ruth chapter 4. Okay? The villagers say to her, is this not Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Can't you just hear the bitterness and the anger that is dripping there in her voice? And I face this all the time when compelling people in the gospel about returning to Christ. It's often met with bitterness and anger. Not just that I would compel them to to turn to Christ, but all the things that they interpret their life that God has not done for them. And we might stop there and say, oh, man, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. you know, like, let's talk about something else. How about the Cowboys, you know, or something? <laughs> you know? Or let's switch to something else. But we have hope from Ruth to know that that bitterness can be dealt with in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and their lives can be transformed. This is Ruth chapter 4. This is the end of the story. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Speaking of Obed. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Isn't that credible? This bitter woman who had nothing ends her life fulfilled and full in the blessings of the Lord and the joy that comes from the gospel. And take note that the blessings of the gospel, sometimes it takes time for that to take root and to bear fruit in our lives. It may not always be experienced right away, but we know there's such great blessing and turning away from a self-directed life to living for Christ. I'm going to use some compelling speech now in this sermon because that's what proclaiming the gospel is. For this is what the Lord has done for us in Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us. He has provided a future for you and for me. He restores the broken relationship between us and our God. He provides all our needs, both physical and spiritual. But it's not enough for us to simply know what he has done. We must respond to him. Have you responded to him? Have you gone to our Redeemer and received the forgiveness as promised in the gospel? 
Perhaps you have. I would say, if so, then you're an ambassador now of that grace and mercy. And God is appealing to the world through you if you're making that appeal in your speech to others. And the question is, how can we grow in becoming an exhorter of others in the gospel? And I would just say, look at Naomi. Naomi goes to Ruth and she says, should I not seek some security for you and for us? It's done out of a a genuine care and compassion for that person, and it's received that way. How does Ruth respond? She'll say, how dare you? Tell me what to do. Oh, come on, mothers-in-law. They're always telling their daughters-in-law what to do. She doesn't say that. She says, everything that you have said, I will do. Wow. You might be surprised. If you exhort and urge people that you know that do not know the Savior, they just might respond that way. You'll have to pick your jaw up off the floor and say, I can't, I, 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 I can't believe it. You want to turn to Christ? Yes. Especially if they know and understand that your compelling speech comes to them from a place of genuine compassion and concern. Right? How do we develop that understanding? I think we need to listen very well to those around us who do not know Christ. We need to ask good questions. We need to develop a relationship of trust so that exhortation is received as it is intended. And by that, I don't mean that you're, you're just always doing relationship building for decades and you never bring up the gospel. That's not what I mean. But I do think that it's important to know your audience to some degree. What are the specific objections that they have to the gospel and to Christ? That's helpful in communicating to them. And we need to have a compassionate and genuine concern for someone's spiritual condition. I'm not looking for, you know, notches on my evangelism belt. That's not what it's about. It's not about numbers. It's just, a, it's just about I care for you, and I'd, I'd, I'd love for you to know what I've come to experience in Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness and pardon and peace. We need to learn to clearly communicate the gospel. Sometimes we don't know what to say, and I, I think it could be as easy as just saying, go to Jesus and ask him to forgive you. That's a single sentence. The psalmist said it this way, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you ever tasted God? What do you mean? I mean, you know, experienced God and found out how good he is. That's what the Bible says. It says taste and see that the Lord is good. The, the Bible challenges you to try God out in a way. All right? And then I think we can also share our own story of sin and redemption and the joy that comes from trusting the Redeemer. It's commonly called a testimony. It's a great way of sharing with other people. I was just as empty and bitter as Naomi until I received, by God's grace and mercy, great joy that comes in the gospel. I want to encourage you today to think about these things and pray in them and ask the Lord, you know, how can I become more exhortative? How can I implore and urge people more in my gospel conversation with them? Because as I've tried to make the point today, I think that is the essence of gospel proclamation. It comes not simply to inform, but it comes to compel lovingly and kindly people to respond and receive what Jesus has given us in the gospel. I'll close with this prayer for us. Let us return today to our Lord and our kinsman redeemer in humble gratitude and worship. And may the Lord bless us with a true sense of our sin, our need for redeemer, and the joy of knowing 
we have a close relative, a man of great means, who has fully paid the prize for our redemption. To the glory of his name we pray. Amen. Amen.